Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. I just can't even look at you. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Because the, the listeners don't know this, but I just watched like a pure moment of absolute like panicked indecision about pouring your beer. <laughs> you didn't want to be pouring when you were supposed to be introducing, which I respect that. That's it's true. It's very true. professional. I can see that you're growing in that, <laughs> but the the look on your face was, do I do it? Do I not? Oh no. What have I done? It is too late. So. Yes, it's true. That was a beautiful thing. I really do wish that we oh, had video of that. It was great. It would have been it would have been a sight to behold. My momentary Our children panic like that. <laughs> like, do I pick the the animal crackers or the strawberries? Oh no, I don't know. Which what do I do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just absolutely frozen with indecision. Oh my goodness. Well, what a great segue, though, yeah. to ask the question. Yeah. What are you drinking? I am drinking Dr. Pepper. Today. Classic. Yes. It was a classic. Good old reliable for me. Yes. Now, why don't you uh, indulge me and pour live? Yes. This is the uh, Nebraska Brewing Company Brunette Nut Brown Ale. Once oh. again, this is your your favorite description ever. Not Here's like my pouring. Everyone can hear. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Pouring into Still a pouring. cup. Because the proper way to have a beer is in a glass, not right out of a can. Hmm. And I will fight there people over There might be dispute it. over that, but... It's disgusting out of a can. Anybody? I don't know if I believe you. Maybe maybe that's why I've never found a beer I liked, because I've been drinking it out of a can. Yeah, obviously. It's got to be it. No, I bottles too, so never mind. I it's mean, just the beer. Bottles is good too, but... Yeah. I mean, out of a can is almost unacceptable. Yes. Um, but yes, this is the 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 beer that uh yes, uses the phrase nut-like and mm. toasted bread aspects in this excellent seasonal ale. You know what? I really slept on toasted bread aspects last time around. That's a that would be a great band name. Let's start a folk punk band. Nut like and, and call toasted it, bread? No, no, no. Uh, toasted bread aspects. <laughs> we can be a folk that is punk a great band. Name. Yeah, let's do yes. it. Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm in. I'm here for it. That I can't great. sing or play any instruments, <laughs> but I'm in. <laughs> I'll do all the things, and I'll just stand there. You and... just clap your hand along to the beat yeah. as close as you can. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> I, I know was you a can. cheerleader, Kevin. <laughs> I know about rhythm. I know you can. I know you can. I also know that you can also sing just, just very well. But wow, that sounded really sarcastic. Yeah, but I did. actually meant it. But I started saying it you're a certain a way. You're a really good singer. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh no, like you're you're really good. No, like you're, you're so good. <laughs> uh, well, oh, we actually man. before we jump into the feel good fact, mm. we do have a little announcement. Okay, okay. So beginning next week, we will be offering bonus content over on Patreon. So our goal with that is to put out one to two shorter episodes a month that will be accessible to anybody who subscribes over on Patreon. 
like alongside of on top of our regular Mm -hmm. kind of four to six episodes each month that we tend to put out. Mm -hmm. And so if you are interested in that, then stick around and we'll give you the Patreon info at the end of the show. That's right. That is right. Had to get that out of the way. No, that's good. I think that's important for everybody to know about. Yeah, I'm excited. I like literally finished next week's Patreon episode. I was like so excited about it. Well, good. I just like blasted through it. (laughs) Well, why don't you go ahead and share with us this week's feel good fact? Okay. This feel good fact came to us from friend, listener, and Patreon subscriber Colette. She sent me an image of this feel good fact and it's incredible and I'm finally sharing it. So the Kyoto Aquarium published a relationship flow chart to document relational drama and romance between the penguins. While there are some varieties of penguins that do mate for life, apparently like casually dating and breaking up and like even cheating is pretty common (gasps) among penguins. And so you got to look that one up. It's pretty good. It's super funny. It's like a very elaborate, very elaborate chart. Oh, wow. With like the picture of the penguin and their name Mm -hmm. with lines drawn. And if it's this color, it means this. And if it's got one of these symbols next to it, it means that they've broken up. (laughs) <laughs> like there was one penguin who entered and ended herself six separate relationships in a single year. So like she was just really trying to figure herself out. Just like. <laughs> yeah. 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 She was kind of Anne from Parks and Rec. Just a new identity with each new boyfriend. No, I really think that she. Yeah. No, okay, I'm like taking this a little too seriously, but <laughs> she really was just trying to discover like, what do I want? Oh, yeah. In a man. Sure. You know? Sure. So really dating around to kind of get a feel. Yeah. I get it. Just play in the field, you know? (laughs) Oh, that is a feel good and also like a strangely like existential feel uh, a fact. I'm kind of like humanity in its like most confusing form of found right there in penguins. Mm. (laughs) What do any of us really want? Exactly. There's the existentialism. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do any of us know what we want in the world? (laughs) Well, my love, why don't you go ahead and share with us what you have for us today? I'm excited. We've never done one like this before. Mm. So in the summer of 1999, two longtime friends planned a five-day road trip across the United States from Boston, Massachusetts to California. They had been friends for years, and one of them had recently been accepted to grad school in California. Road trips and adventures were really important to their friendship, and so they piled into the car and began their trek. What was supposed to be a single-day stop at the Carlsbad Caverns National Park in southern New Mexico did not go as planned, however. Hmm. Both men would enter the park, but only one would make it out alive. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Oh, boy. Okay. So 26-year-old David Coughlin and 25-year-old Rafi Kodikian were best friends. Both men were going to school in Boston, and they were introduced to each other by their mutual friend, Kirsten Swan. David had grown up in a suburb of Boston, and after he graduated from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, he worked in Wellesley as a traffic policy analyst and kind of like a clerk, Hmm. and he was preparing to get his master's degree in environmental sciences from UC Santa Barbara in the fall of 1999. So he was kind of like a a big fish in a small pond. Okay, yeah. And he, right out of college, landed this job in his hometown. He was excellent at it, but he was just like— way overqualified. Mm. And I mean, this is like a a very smart, very bright young person who would like just get yelled at about somebody 
you know, someone parked their car in front of my house, like very Mm -hmm. kind of petty things. And so when he got accepted, this was like a huge, huge deal to him to get to study what he was really passionate about. That's cool. So he also had a girlfriend, Sonnet Frost, at this time. And Sonnet also had a young child that she was super dedicated to. So David and Sonnet's son, Daniel, hit it off very shortly after they were introduced. And so they'd been sort of like unofficially living together in the months leading up to David's big move. Sonnet and David were both extremely sad about the changes that the move would bring, but they were both on the same page that they would like kind of continue their relationship long distance Mm -hmm. and kind of let the chips fall where they may. Rafi had grown up in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, and he studied journalism in college at Northeastern University in Boston. He was working at a finance company at the time of today's story. (laughs) So Rafi was actually a really great writer, and he had several pieces published about his travels across the United States in the Boston Globe. He'd visited dozens of states, all kinds of terrain, and yeah, I mean, he really just had that like kind of thirst for adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, he really looked up to the author, Jack Kerouac, oh, which yeah. if you're a Kerouac fan, you are familiar with his, one of his most famous works on the road, mm-hmm. which is based off of his travels with a friend of his across the United States. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely a parallel between on the road and this story for sure. So, yeah. you know, two friends having an adventure, mm-hmm. traveling across the country, seeing all the cool things, a little right. debauchery here and there, you know, <laughs> so all. yeah, that's, that's it. So interestingly, Rafi initially was not able to get time off approved. So he was not initially planning on going along for the trip. Hmm. So David kind of pushed him. He's like, just try again. Just like see, because your pieces in the Boston Globe did so well. And I know this would be like really, really great for your writing career and just for us as our a friendship, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to see you again for a long time. Like, see if you can make it work. Yeah. And so after a little convincing, Rafi's boss did approve the time off so he could go on the trip. So shortly before they left for their trip, Rafi and Kirsten, the girl who had introduced the guys, broke up. They had been dating for a little while. Oh, okay. And yeah. so during the time that Rafi and Kirsten were dating, they were kind of like, the three best friends that anyone could have. Mm. Like they were kind of all inseparable. They'd hang out all the time. Yeah. So even after they broke up, Kirsten kind of remained close with both of them. They would all still hang out. It was really amicable. It just didn't work out. Yeah. But it was during this time that Rafi and David really grew closer oh, okay. together. Yeah. yeah. Rafi would go on to say that David was as close as he ever had to a brother. They were very tight. Just like a pair Mm -hmm. of good old-fashioned best friends. Yeah. So the book I read for this story said that they were kind of opposites in a lot of ways. David was more shy and kind of like strategic Mm. with when he spoke and how he spoke, Mm -hmm. whereas Rafi was more of like the free spirit and he was kind of more extroverted and all of that. Yeah. But their friendship definitely worked. (laughs) They hung out every weekend and regularly called each other throughout the week. They'd go to the bars or go to Red Sox games and all that kind of stuff. So one of Rafi's favorite things about David was how he would greet people. He would say as fast as he could, hey, how you doing? What's happening? What's going on? (laughs) Which it was just like cute that he remembered that. So their friendship was just like, it was just really genuine is what I'm getting at. So realizing that David's move meant that this was kind of the end of an era, the two decided to take advantage of this road trip like to the fullest. Yeah. What started out as Rafi just helping Dave with moving some of his things to California 
ended up turning into making several stops at some like scenic locations <laughs> or places where they had friends or family in different areas of the country. That's cool. Yeah. So on July 30th, 1999, the boys piled into Rafi's red Mazda protege and began their trek. They didn't go overboard with packing, but they did manage to load up a two-man tent, some sleeping bags, clothes, a small propane grill, some hiking gear, and a notebook that they planned to use to kind of take a journal Mm -hmm. of their adventures together. Makes sense. That's cool. The first part of their trip was dedicated to the bars. (laughs) So they kind of went bar hopping through Boston. Then they made their way down to Pennsylvania where they visited Rafi's family and then over to Virginia to visit one of their cousins. From there, they headed down to Nashville. And while they were there, they hung out at a different bar. They played pool and they had a few drinks before heading over to Austin, Texas. With each stop on their journey, the men would take turns writing in the journal that they had brought with them, making notes like, had a ball on the corners and like the, the bar did hmm. like their bar crawl, which yeah, is kind of yeah. funny. Um, the ride wasn't too eventful, save the rain. That was bad enough to make us pull over and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like not really exciting updates, but they're still dedicated yeah. to taking notes, which right. is, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's cool. At the start of their trip, they were debating if they'd rather visit the grand Canyon or Carlsbad caverns on their way to California. They were leaning towards the Grand Canyon, but David remembered an uncle who had recommended the caverns to them pretty strongly, like some time back. So though it wasn't initially a stop they had planned on making, they both thought that this place really did sound cool. And so they decided that that would be the place that they would stop. And like if they could squeeze in the Grand Canyon, yeah, then they would try. But they're yeah. like, let's bank on this place either way. So Yeah, that's cool. So as they continued on their journey, they stopped at landmarks and hidden gems, kind of like bars and restaurants. And then finally, on August 4th, 1999, David and Rafi arrived at Carlsbad Caverns National Park around 6 p.m. Though they were both nursing a hangover from their previous night out in Austin, (laughs) the two were really excited for this stop. The game plan was that they'd only stay for one night. They would camp out in one of the more scenic areas, and then they'd hit the road first thing in the morning, maybe after squeezing in like a short hike to look around. Mm -hmm. But this was really intended to be a simple stop along the way, like 12 hours at most, and not a place they wanted to stay for an extended period of time. They drove through the park's entrance into the Carlsbad Caverns Visitor Center. The young ranger at the front desk told them about the many options that there were for like areas that they could camp as well as cool information about like, like they're like attractions. Mm-hmm. So like bats, there's yeah. like a yeah. place where they set up seating so you can watch the bats come in. But that was like a several hour long ordeal. And they're like, yeah. it's already kind of getting late. We yeah. need to get set up and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about the caverns for a minute. Okay. So it's actually the Carlsbad Caverns National Park is the sixth smallest national park in the United States, but it's still pretty huge. Hmm. It's around 47,000 acres and stretching beyond the borders of the park is the Chihuahuan Desert, which is the largest desert in North America. And so this area is really just like miles and miles of desert. Oh, yeah. Okay. And fun fact, I read that the name of the desert means hot, sandy place in the Tarahumara native language. I hope that's, I did not butcher that. That's pretty that. cool. Yeah. Hot, sandy place, which hot, is sandy place. accurate. Yeah. It's a really neat place, though. There yeah. are over 100 caves. There's miles of desert, mountain ranges, canyons, desert wetlands, and wildlife. And it has a pretty rich history as well. It rains only 10 inches a year in this desert. And shade is hard to come by because a lot of the cacti in the area is, like, pretty low to the ground. Mm. 
So after getting the need to know from the ranger at the counter, David and Rafi decided to visit one of the closest locations to the visitor center, a location known as Rattlesnake Canyon. Cool. To get there, they would need to drive about five miles where they could park at the trailhead, and then they could pack up their gear and hike another mile or so into the canyon where they could set up camp for the night. Mm -hmm. The tricky thing about this area is that there's no designated camping area. And so it's not really a novice site. Mm, People camp there, but it's kind of like informal. And, And once you go into the visitor center and get the paperwork squared away, you're kind of just set loose. Yeah. So interesting. They both agreed, like, you know, we're only staying here for one night. And Mm -hmm. this will also kind of give us the experience also if we pick this location. So that was kind of their mindset. It wasn't, they really didn't think too hard about it. They're just like, that place sounds cool. It's close by. You know, that was kind of the idea. That's pretty cool. Is it, so is Carlsbad National Park in, uh, in California? That's New it Mexico. In, it's in New Mexico. Okay. Yes. I was trying, I was trying to remember. I know there's a Carlsbad, California. I know that's Car- Carlsbad, New Mexico. I'm pretty sure there's Carlsbad, Arizona too. So I'm like, and I know all those places have desert. So yeah. I was like, <laughs> kind of blends together. I'm not a little sure bit. which one this is at. But. Yes. This is New Mexico. Cool. Yeah. So they filled out a permit for a single night stay. And then the ranger gave them a bit of a safety rundown. So I feel like I can't overstate this part. These were two young men from a big city who had very limited experience with the backcountry, if any at all. Mm -hmm. The desert is a beautiful but extremely unforgiving place. Locations like Rattlesnake Canyon are tricky and can be very dangerous. So the rundown given by the ranger definitely made that very clear to both of them as well. Mm. David and Rafi were instructed to buy a topographical map. They were informed to leave local plant and animal life alone. They were not allowed to cook with fire because there's a high risk for wildfires in the desert. Right. And they were told to pack out what they pack in. So basically like clean up after yourself, like make it look like no one was ever there. And most importantly, they were informed that there was no water in the backcountry. Each person is advised to pack one gallon of water per person per day in -hmm. order to avoid dehydration. Yeah. So they only plan to stay for one night. And... They already, by the time they'd gotten in, they've already passed the hottest part of the day and they were planning on leaving mm-hmm. before the hottest part of the following day. Yeah. And so they only purchased three pints of water. They packed up a can of corn, a large can of beans, hot dogs and buns, two bottles of Gatorade, and a few energy bars. They also packed up minimal gear. They had their tent and sleeping bags, flashlights, a lighter, cigars, their propane cooking stove, a few pots and pans a camera, their water and topographical map Mm -hmm. that they bought, and a journal and pens to document their visit. Hmm. The men then cruised over to the trailhead. They were the only car and were excited to have this whole glorious area to camp in by themselves and to explore for a little bit in the morning. Mm -hmm. They began their hike, taking mental note of the fact that there were no formal trail markers, but instead there were piles of white limestone rocks that are called cairns that were about 50 yards apart from one another, and those were the things that kind of marked the trail so you know you're on the trail. Mm, okay, yeah, cool. So, do you got a visual on that? Yes, yes. Okay. After a 20-minute hike, they stopped and looked at their map. From their current location, they had two options for where to go to set up camp. They could have went on the southeastern trail, which was the main trail and an easily understandable like focal point on the map, mm-hmm. or they could have taken the northwest trail, 
a trail described as the primitive route. Oh. After weighing out their options, they decided that they were here for the adventure, and so they chose to take the Northwestern Trail, <laughs> the road less traveled. Oh, man. As they hiked up, they were actually heading off of the trail. After hmm. hiking the Northwestern Trail for about a mile, they were very quickly off the trail completely. Mm-hmm. They made it another quarter mile up the canyon and found a location that was flat near a rock face. And that's where they decided to set up camp around 8 PM. Wow. They were both super thirsty from their trek and from their hangover from the previous night. And so they quickly chugged down a bottle of water after setting up camp. They pulled out their camping stove and used a full pint of water to boil their hot dogs. They also ate the can of corn. So they're hot dogs. What? They couldn't like grill them, you know, just roast them over the fire. They're making a fire. No, no, they can't set a fire. Oh, I thought they were making a fire. No, they had their like little cooking stove. Okay. That's flameless. Okay. Okay. You were very upset about the boiling of the hot dogs. I just, boiling hot dogs is worse than microwaving them, but that is my personal opinion, though it is correct. Mm -hmm. Please continue. (laughs) (laughs) So after dinner was over, they drank their bottle of Gatorade. They actually forgot one of the bottles in the car by Mm. accident. Mm. Whoops. So they sat up and chatted for a little bit, recounting their amazing journey so far. And they were kind of just excitedly planning out the next day together. Yeah. They had actually decided that they would take a small tour of the caverns in the morning, and then they would make a quick trek over to the Grand Canyon. Like they decided we're going to do it. Oh, cool. We're just going to do it. Yeah. After snapping a few photos with their camera and enjoying the incredibly gorgeous scenery that I saw described as almost transporting you back in time to when the landscape was covered by seawater. So Mm. after it's really neat. The book that I read, I'll talk about it in a little bit, but they, it used to be an ocean. Mm-hmm. And so just describing the way that the colors kind of change at night. That's cool. And the way that it looks. Yeah. yeah it's really a beautiful place. Huh. So they decided it was now time for some well-earned rest. In the morning, the guys got up right away and packed up all their stuff, tediously combing over their site and leaving no trace of their belongings or trash behind. Once they were all packed, they began to hike through the canyon. After about a mile of walking, they came to one of those cairns, marking a trail near a small riverbed. They continued on that trail, which led them to a brush field. And after a short distance, they were back at the riverbed. So they somehow made a loop. Hmm. Weird. At this point, they weren't worried. It was a cool 75 degrees and they were like super energized from their night of rest. And it's still only a little after 8 a.m. at this point. So they figure we've got plenty of time to find the trail and head back to the car. Yeah. So they walked for a while longer, but they still couldn't find the trail. Oh, On their hike, when neither of them were seeing any terrain or any like one specific feature that was familiar to them, they both started to get kind of like a sinking feeling. Like, oh no, are we Mm, lost? Yeah. They knew their car was parked to the east. And so they were trying to just keep pushing that direction, thinking that their paths would inevitably meet up with the trail. Yeah, at some point, you would think. You would think. So when noon rolled around, they were both becoming increasingly uneasy about their situation. Mm -hmm. So they busted out their topographical map but neither of them knew how to read it. Oh. Yeah, these maps are really confusing to read. Like, if you don't know how to read one, it's essentially Mm -hmm. another language. And considering the fact that they'd chosen the less traveled path, the map was, like, totally useless. Totally, yeah. The temperature by this time was already soaring up into the 100-degree realm. Their skin Mm. was becoming hot and sweaty from the sun beating down on them. Mm -hmm. So they decided to split up and continue their search for the trail. Oh, man. Mercifully, in the early afternoon hours, a large rain cloud rolled in. 
It actually did rain for wow. a short time. That's lucky. Very lucky. So they used this as an opportunity to collect more water. Mm-hmm. They like kneeled down on the ground and took slurps out of like the sandy, dirty water on the ground and spit it into their water bottles trying wow. to like preserve it. Uh-huh. So by the time it was done raining, they'd each managed to collect a little less than a pint of water. Wow. The hunt was still on for the trail, but when the evening rolled around with no success, they decided, all right, we just got to stay another night. Like, there's no use searching for it in the dark. Let's just get some rest. Yeah. It's going to be fine. You know, so they're trying to stay calm. The main thing that they were hoping for was that the visitor center who had their permit would notice that, oh, they've extend, they've gone past their yeah. single day. Yeah. So they hoped that, you know, look for them. anybody yeah. would come look for them. Right. You know, they would notice their car or they would notice the permit right. either way. So Man. they were kind of banking Ooh. on that. Yeah. So as they discussed plans for the next day, they ate cactus fruit, like a like prickly pear fruit mm-hmm. that they'd foraged on their hike and hoped that tomorrow would be a better day. That night, over the crest of three mountainous slopes, they saw what they had believed to have been headlights from a passing car. Hmm. So this made them hopeful that maybe if they hiked in that direction tomorrow, we'll find a road. Oh, yeah. So. Okay. Little did they know, the camp that they'd set up this night was 275 feet from the trail that would have led them back to their car. Mm. They woke up in the morning. That is. I know. Okay. It's just going to keep getting worse. I'm just going to. Yeah. That's like literally like like a scene in a movie or like, Mm -hmm. like, like Hey Arnold. (laughs) Yeah. Where it's like, they're right there. And then it like pans to the right. And it's like, it's all right there. You're so close. You're going the wrong direction. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know why Hey Arnold comes to mind, but I feel like there's a scene like that in Hey Arnold at some point. There probably is. Somebody out there who's listening definitely knows. (laughs) They they know what I'm envisioning and they will tell us, hopefully, which episode I'm thinking of. (laughs) So they woke up in the morning and quickly wrote a note for the rangers in case they did come looking for them. And like, hopefully, if Mm -hmm. they do and they stumble upon what used to be our camp, they'll see this note and come find us. Yeah. The note said, quote, help, help. We filled out a backcountry card on Wednesday afternoon, evening, and headed down. Camped Wednesday, started back on Thursday morning, but couldn't find the entrance to the trail leading to the car. Looked all day Thursday. Slept here Thursday night and saw headlights along mountain number three around midnight. We're headed to that peak. See map on previous page. We've got minimal water and have been eating cactus fruit. We need help. End quote. Wow. Yeah. So the note went on to kind of explain their journey thus far and mm-hmm. mentioned that once they found the visitor center, that they would go back for their supplies. So they sort of like abandoned camp for the moment. Oh, which wow. made sense. They're kind of like, we don't want to have to carry a bunch of stuff. Yeah. We don't know where we're going. Like, yeah. we'll come back and get it later. We'll just drive down. Right. By Friday morning, they set out once again and headed out for the mountain peaks. Had they headed north from where they were standing, they would have ended up back on the trail. If they had headed east, they would have found a road. And if they had gone south, they would have found a trail that led to an operational ranch with, Mm. like, people who lived there. Yeah. The one direction that led to endless desert was west. Oh, no. And that's the direction they headed in. Oh. Unfortunately, temperatures quickly rose into the 100s once again. And before they knew it, they were hiking up a treacherous path with no shade and with the last of their water supply. As they hiked, thorns from brush cut at their legs. They were sweating bullets, losing upwards of two quarts of water an hour at that rate. After roughly four hours, they hit the top of the mountain. And when they got there, they were horrified to realize that there was no road. They had just spent all of that time and energy in hopes of finding some level of civilization. And there was nothing there. 
So this is one of the more devastating parts of the story because from their vantage point, they should have been able to see their car, Uh see the ranger station Uh and other indicators of which direction that they should head next. Had they looked in this direction that was like, there was kind of like a rock face behind them Mm -hmm. that was blocking their view. But had they turned that direction, they would have seen all of it, which is just really heartbreaking. There's like water tanks, very visible trails from that vantage point. They just didn't see it. They, Oh my gosh. I'm trying to think of like, first of all, the panic that they would be in of like, there's nothing out here. Where are we? Yeah. But then also like the, and I guess, you know, at that point, you're a couple days in the desert. You're probably experiencing some pretty, like your head's kind of messed up Mm -hmm. in that scenario. Mm -hmm. So the, the moment is probably kind of confusing where you, you might not do the most logical thing. The most logical thing being, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to look in all directions. Mm -hmm. They just didn't. Right. Well, there's, there's a lot of that we'll see as we keep moving. You know, they've been essentially exposed to Mm -hmm. extreme elements for several days with hardly any food and virtually no water. Right. That is a huge factor in your physical well-being, your mental well-being when you're in the desert. Yeah. So it's just really sad because there were so many moments where it's like, oh, if they just would have known to look this way, everything would have been fine. Right. Well, and that's the thing is, is it's looking that way. It's also being like, okay, we've gone four hours in this direction. There's obviously nothing this direction. Let's go back the other way. Mm-hmm. Like at some point we're going to hit something the other direction. Right. And they would have, but instead they, oh man. It's just really heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's one of those things, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go, but like it's really easy to look at a situation like this and be like, why didn't you just do this? Right. Ah, like you're so mad shaking your fist as if it's a movie. But like when you actually put yourself into the shoes of someone with minimal backcountry experience and no like necessary resources. Yeah. And like just what heat does and exhaustion does to your brain and like your decision-making, your ability to recognize your surroundings, your alertness, all of that. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh gosh, it's so human. Like they, it was an easy human error on top of the mental and physical strain from being exposed. So it's just really sad. So they were exhausted. Mm -hmm. Rafi was straight up passing out. So he kind of was coming to kind of in and out. And Mm -hmm. so he laid himself down under a bush to try and get out of the sun for a minute. Dehydration and exhaustion were setting in in a big way. And he actually told David to go without him and just leave him there. David refused. And even though these bushes did offer a little shade, they also had sharp thorns that sliced at them. Also, if they didn't move for extended periods of time, Ants would swoop in and bite at them. Ooh. So it was just like terrible. Ooh, like desert ants sound awful. Like extra mean. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And so everything was just looking more bleak with each passing minute. Oh man. Vultures began flying overhead, circling over the two friends. What these birds tend to do is to wait for an animal, or in this case, two humans, to become too weak to run or fight back. And then they literally swoop down and pick you apart, eating you alive. Yeah. It's a nightmare. Wow. It's like so scary. So they were like, we are not going to let this happen. Mm -hmm. If it gets to that point, they made a pact that they would kill themselves together. Like we are not going to let the birds get us. Like They specifically even wrote that in their notebook. So Rafi wrote down their pact in the notebook along with this. 
quote, we will not let the buzzards get us alive. God forgive us, end quote. Hmm. Sad. So as the sun began to lower, the friends ate some more cactus fruit, but they were both desperately thirsty. They decided to try to drink their own urine at this point. Yeah. They tried to filter it by like peeing through a hat and Mm -hmm. into one of the empty water bottles, Mm -hmm. which I don't blame them for trying this because they're desperate. But just as an FYI, drinking your own urine in a situation like this is not recommended because urine is literally made of a small amount of water along with a bunch of toxins and salts that your kidneys are trying to flush out of your body. And when you're dehydrated, it actually takes more water to digest the urine than the urine itself supplies to your body. So that's like a little survival tip that I learned from this story. So when they attempted to drink it, it actually made them sick. And so they like, were like, no, okay, we can't do that. Yeah. So at this point, the effects of dehydration are getting worse. They both began to hallucinate. Mm Mm-hmm. Like David swore he saw bottles of water on a pile of rocks, but there obviously wasn't any. And he was like convinced that the rangers oh, were messing with them. Oh my gosh. They also hallucinated seeing those limestone cairns uh-huh. as they were walking. So they're thinking that they're hiking along a trail, but the cairns aren't even there. Wow. So it's getting really bad. By the time they made it to the rock ledge where David thought he'd seen the water, they were both physically spent. On top of all of this, the cactus fruit that they'd been eating is the kind that can make you sick if you eat it when it's not ripe. Mm. So they're eating this fruit thinking that they're getting food and water out of the deal, but they were really slowly, essentially poisoning themselves. Yeah. Wow. So that night was terrible. Mm-hmm. And David was in extremely bad shape. His legs were seizing up and he was violently vomiting from the cactus fruit. It was so bad that he would vomit and it would get stuck like in his throat. So mm-hmm. Rafi literally had to like stick his hand on his friend's throat to pull it out. Oh, it was really sad. So they limped and kind of struggled their way back to the campsite. At this point, it was 110 degrees. Oh my gosh. In the Canyon. Like unbelievably yeah. hot. Yeah. With no reprieve Oh my for gosh. days. So from there, they decided to break the no fires rule. Mm-hmm. Once they were down in the canyon, they started burning stuff. Mm-hmm. They burnt shrubs and small branches, and they realized that the smoke wasn't really rising. They were down in the canyon rather than at a higher elevation, so their fire wasn't even visible from any higher vantage points. Yeah, yeah. So they decided, okay, we're too weak to hike back up. Mm-hmm. Let's just burn one of the sleeping bags, and maybe it will put out more smoke. And they were correct. It did. But they're down so low in the canyon that nobody could see it. Mm-hmm. So the smoke would sort of like flood the area of the canyon horizontally instead uh-huh. of rising up into the sky like a smoke signal. Yeah. And so, then just dissipate. And it would yeah. just dissipate. So nobody saw it. Oh my gosh. They tried so many things. And with every attempt, there were just one or two seemingly small factors that made it impossible for their plans to work. Mm-hmm. And it's just really heartbreaking. Wow. That night, Rafi hallucinated people in the canyon who'd come to help them. And it was a restless and painful night for both of them. On that night, when he had a moment of clarity... David wrote a letter to his girlfriend in their journal. He wrote, quote, Sonnet, baby, I write this with a shaking hand. That was not intentional, I swear. I do not know what to do right now, but I am in utter agony, and I know you would understand. I love you so much. I have barely eaten and drank since Wednesday evening. Nobody is coming to help. I love you. Tell Dan, if I find a heavenly monkey, I will forward one along. Dan's her son. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had forever, but now all we have is eternity. Who knows, maybe I'll get kicked out for disorderly conduct and be able to pay you a visit. 
You will always be in my heart and you will always have an angel standing by. Eternally yours, David Andrew. P.S. I'm trying so hard to be strong right now. It's not working. End quote. Oh my gosh. So he's writing a goodbye letter. Yeah. Yeah. They are convinced we're done for. This is it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So the following morning, when help still hadn't arrived, things were becoming as dire as ever. Yeah. David had been vomiting the entire night like sweaty, Mm -hmm. hands and knees, desperate heaving for hours on end. And they were both fully convinced at this point that nobody was coming to help them. Mm -hmm. It's been several days at this point. And so they were fully convinced, this is it. We're going to die a slow, painful, lonely death. Man. So they took turns writing more notes in Mm -hmm. the journal. Mm -hmm. David wrote to the rest of his family and chronicled his terrible situation. And Rafi did the same. There were lots of I love yous and I'm sorry's. And there was also a sense of like acceptance Mm -hmm. about their situation, Mm -hmm. as well as notes about what their wishes were for their remains if they were ever found. They wrote about how nobody was coming for them. And so quick trigger warning. I'm about to briefly mention attempted suicide, as well as the method of attempted suicide with a few specific details. Mm -hmm. And so if that's a sensitive subject for you, you can skip forward a few minutes. So they had pocket knives with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, the pocket knife that Rafi had was a four-inch blade, and it was relatively dull, but they used his knife to try and cut their wrists. They were both too weak to be able to hold the knife firmly enough in a way that they could actually cut into the skin deeply enough. Wow. And so it didn't work. Wow. And so when that failed, David had a pretty serious request from his best friend. He begged Rafi to kill him. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Rafi told him, absolutely not. Like, I will not do that. No way. And David told him, like, please, like, I'm getting worse. Nobody's coming for us. We're dying. Like, please just put me out of my misery. And so they, he's like, let's just try and get some rest and talk about it in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so by dawn, it was just too much. David oh. was begging Rafi to kill him. So this was the early morning hours of August 8th, 1999. And so Rafi took the knife. He gripped it as firmly as he could and plunged the knife into David's chest. Oh my gosh. Unfortunately for both of them, the first stab would not pierce David's heart, but his lung instead. Oh. So David was gasping for air, but he was still very much alive. Mm -hmm. David told him like, hey dude, I'm still alive. You need to do it again. So Rafi pulled the knife out and stabbed him in the chest again, this time hitting him in the heart. He asked David, are you okay? Are you still in pain? And David told him, no, I'm okay. Rafi told him he would cover his face with a shirt to try and speed up the process and to eliminate some of the pain if he could. So I'm assuming the visual I get of that is that he's like kind of suffocating him as well. I'm not Mm -hmm. positive about that, but that's kind of what it sounds like to me. So slowly, David Coughlin did die from his wounds. Rafi then used the little energy that he had left to grab stones that he placed around and over David's body as like a form of burial. Mm -hmm. He wanted to keep animals away from messing with the body. Yeah. He then went back into the sliced up remains of their tent and wrote a note before he passed out for several hours. The note read, quote, I killed and buried my best friend today. 
Dave had been in pain all night. At around five or six, he turned to me and begged that I put my knife into his chest. I did, and a second time when he wouldn't die. He still breathed and spoke, so I told him I was going to cover his face. He said, okay. He struggled but died. I buried him with love. God and his family and mine, please forgive me, Rafi Kadikian. Oh my End gosh, quote. that is so sad. Just heartbreaking. Oh. Heartbreaking. So all was still and silent until the silence was broken by footsteps. No. And no, these were not imagined footsteps. They were very real. They belonged to a park ranger named Lance Matson. Oh my gosh. Hours later. This was around 10 a.m. Yeah. Hours later. So Lance had seen the car belonging to the men who had checked in a few days before. Uh-huh. Curious, he pulled their sheet out and noticed that they had only applied for a single day permit. And so the red flags went up. Mm-hmm. Lance and another ranger named John Keebler decided that we're just going to go look for them. Mm-hmm. And so Lance kind of got the hunch after seeing where their car was parked to look into Rattlesnake Canyon. And that's when he spotted the campsite, like from above. Uh-huh. As the rangers approached, they noticed rocks laid out in a formation that clearly read SOS, as well as another pile of rocks. Uh-huh. When they looked into the shredded tent, they saw Raffi laying on his side and looking at them with like a blank stare. Oh Raffi asked them for water. They quickly called for help for Raffi, who was obviously looking worse for wear. Mm-hmm. His legs were all sliced up, as were his arms. He was dirty and disheveled and obviously suffering from heat exhaustion and dehydration. They asked Raffi where his friend was, and he pointed to the rock pile and said, right there, I killed him. Oh, my gosh. The rangers asked him if he had any weapons, and Raffi handed over the knife he'd used to kill his friend. The rangers were not worried that he was going to attack them, but they were definitely shocked at this whole thing. Yeah, It had taken them an extremely short amount of time to find these men. They had no clue how they could have gotten lost and ended up in such a serious situation. Right. Raffi explained the whole thing as best as he could. So they gave him some water, and as he attempted to drink it, he just was, like, throwing it up. Like, his body would, like, not absorb it. It was just, like, rejecting it. Mm -hmm. So they called in the head of law enforcement for the park. Uh, This was Mark Macia. So while Macia was convinced that Rafi had been telling the truth about what happened for the most part, there were some things that struck him as odd about what Rafi had said. Yeah. So for one, Rafi was not in terrible condition. He was not in, like— Hmm. He, whatever it was about the situation, Rafi was not as bad off as David was. Interesting. Yeah. So once he was set up with an IV, he very quickly regained strength. And that for, I don't know why this guy thinks this is odd. Because it's kind of common knowledge that the dehydrated person becoming hydrated again really quickly does regain all their faculties. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know why he was... Skeptical about that. Sure. Yeah. So he's like, they're like waiting for a helicopter to come in. He's getting the IV and slowly his speech is becoming more coherent. Right. Well, and especially through an IV, I've had that happen before where I've gotten a, an IV of just saline mm-hmm. and it's like all of a sudden you are very hydrated. Yeah. You are like feeling like. And energized. It, yes. It's a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. That's. I mean, it was 1999, so who knows what kind of weird things people didn't know. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You know. Well, and really what it boiled down to was that he wasn't fully buying Raffi's story the more he thought about it. Right. He thought it was weird that Raffi wasn't strong enough to have killed himself, but he could kill his friend. He also took note that Raffi made a joke. 
Mm-hmm. He said something like, my grandma could fly the helicopter here faster than this one or something like that. And for whatever reason, that really stood out to Messiah. Hmm. Like you're dehydrated and you just killed your friend, but you're coherent enough to make a joke. Yeah. So they were found super quickly and easily, like I said. Right. So how could they have possibly gotten lost like yeah. this? And so to Messiah, he's just like, something's fishy here. Yeah. He didn't. So, and this whole time, Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is this is the campsite that they set up that they're like 250 feet from the they, trail. Yeah, right? so that was the first day. They did pack up that first day. Oh, okay, okay. But then they came back to the same area because they knew how to get there. Right. And then they were just kind of searching in the immediate area surrounding Rattlesnake yeah. Canyon, but they were just growing so weak. They couldn't get quite far They couldn't far get enough. very far. So they, they reset up their tent, which was like slashed to ribbons from all of like the thorns and stuff mm-hmm. like that. There was like literally one remaining part yeah. of the tent, like the rain flap, I think. Yeah. Wow. And so, yeah, they were in, they were still in Rattlesnake Canyon when they were found, mm-hmm. but I think they might've been a short distance away from where their first campsite was. Yeah. If so that makes either sense. way, not even probably a mile from, from the, the, from the, the trail. trail, from the trailhead. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's and then crazy. from there, if they had gotten to their car, they'd be five miles from the visitor center, which they could do that in five minutes in the car. Right. You know. So Rafi was airlifted to Carlsbad Medical Center about 30 miles away, and he received medical care. He was found to be 20% dehydrated, but he luckily recovered very quickly. He was actually discharged that same day. Hmm. But now a new kind of trouble began. Rafi Kadikian had confessed to murdering his friend on federal land. Mm-hmm. So this is a big deal. But it was also such a one in a million circumstance. And so how do you even begin to prosecute a case like this? Yeah. As soon as he was released from the hospital, Edie County Sheriff's Office was there and they promptly arrested Rafi for the murder. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, David's body was taken in for an autopsy. It was determined that he was moderately to severely dehydrated and that had David not been killed by Rafi, he would have made a full recovery. That is so sad. It's so sad. Oh my gosh. I can't even believe how sad this whole thing is. I'm just depressed with this episode so far. So I'm sure it won't get any better. It won't get any better. (laughs) So while pouring over evidence was a simple enough task, figuring out how and why things played out this way was much more complicated. Mm -hmm. First off, they did have the confession. Yeah. They had evidence recovered at the crime scene. They had the journal, the report from the medical examiner. Rafi's medical records, as well as comments from the sheriff's office that essentially just said that it's not normal that any human could have it in them to end their friend's misery by killing them. Yeah. Which, like, that kind of feels like an opinion. Yeah. I'm just saying. But they factored that in as evidence. Sure. While the journal clearly indicated that both men fully believed that they were going to die out there, what they did not see was a written request from David that he wanted Rafi to kill him. And even if they had, there's virtually no precedent for killing someone just because they ask you to. Right. There's obviously a conversation to be had with medical intervention on that front, but that's obviously, this doesn't fit the bill in this story. still a different scenario. And even if you want to squint at it, like there's, there's just such a. There's literally no precedent for this story. Right. There just isn't. Right. There's not, and, and there doesn't seem to be a great. There wouldn't be a great argument either way to right. say, oh, he begged you and begged you and begged you. And so you did it still is kind of like, but you still shouldn't. Right. <laughs> and on the other side, like he begged you and begged you and begged you. 
and you just wouldn't do it is also kind of like if they both would have just died like i don't know it's it it's hard to get there i i know for me that would be a very uh like unlikely scenario Mm -hmm. but also like we've established these guys have been out in the heat for so long yes their minds aren't working right right and because their minds aren't working right they can't even reasonably uh like there's no reasonable logic to even argue against it right so I, i like i see a lot of understanding for rafi because of course like he's gonna be like my brain was messed up too. Well, like, and he also didn't do it right away. Yeah. He waited yeah. several hours and yeah. like he encouraged him to get some sleep. Right. Let's talk about it in the morning and morning mm-hmm. came and they're like, and, and they came back, come back to it. And eventually you're worn down by someone's request to do well, something. And he was like crying and moaning and begging for hours. Like yeah. at some point when you're already mentally and physically just depleted, and you have that coming from this person that you love, that you feel like is your brother, mm-hmm. so close to them. You know, at some point, Damn. I feel like if you put yourself into their shoes for real, yeah, it's not hard to see how he got to that decision. Yeah, it's really not. Yeah. So I just feel so. <sighs> I hope I'm never in a situation like that. Right. So they also noted that the men still had a can of beans and some energy bars left at the campsite. So why didn't they eat those things? Hmm. They also found very small fibers matching the sleeping bag on the knife, which made investigators wonder if David had ever said anything to Rafi about killing him at all. They believe that, for whatever reason, dehydration confusion being the most likely, that once David was asleep, Rafi went ahead and just stabbed him through the sleeping bag with the same intention of putting him out of his misery. Hmm. So they figured out that the boys had burned the sleeping bag. And so they thought, okay, we can see evidence that they've burned the sleeping bag, mm-hmm. but what if they burned it? What if just Rafi burned it to sure. kind of get rid of yeah. evidence that he had stabbed David through the sleeping bag? Hmm. So. Wow. Yeah. So they assume that Rafi intended to kill David, which I feel like is important to say it just like straight up like that, mm-hmm. that his intention was solely to kill him. They wow. didn't have a motive. But they did have that. So when a second helicopter was deployed to the crime scene, it essentially blasted what was left of the camp into smithereens, which made the scene almost impossible to fully investigate. So they weren't actually able to fully look into the site like as it was. Yeah, yeah. So when Rafi was arrested, he was held on a $50,000 bail, Mm -hmm. which was the highest that the judge on this case had ever set. Because Rafi's parents were wealthy, they actually paid his bail, and he awaited trial with his family in their home in Pennsylvania. He was charged with murder, but since this was such a -a one-of-a-kind case, his lawyers had their work cut out for them. Sure. So his lawyers were Gary Mitchell and Shauna Boyne, and they decided to go for a defense called involuntary intoxication based on the severity of Rafi's dehydration. Mm -hmm. So in simple terms— Due to his dehydration, Rafi's ability to think clearly and make decisions as he normally would was disrupted, making his accountability in the murder more or less out of his control. Mm, okay. However, That's kind of what I was saying. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. it makes sense why yeah. they would pick that. So the judge actually voted against this because involuntary intoxication would require Rafi to have unknowingly ingested something that caused that sort of mental break. Mm. And dehydration didn't qualify at that time. 
Well, then the those fruits though would have done that too. They're like poisonous if they're not ripe. The, they make you like stomach sick. Oh, okay, okay. Well, Which you could argue that that absolutely would do that. Yeah, would do that because they're already dehydrated yeah. and now they're purging more from their bodies. Mm-hmm. You could make that argument, but either way, it was rejected. So interesting. I don't know. So I did yeah. find an, uh, a document about involuntary intoxication and this case and like how it actually could have been applied that I'll link in the show notes because it's actually super fascinating. So the defense had a really small list of options for defense to choose from. Mm -hmm. And so with involuntary intoxication being shut down, they decided to plead no contest to second degree murder. Hmm. That's kind of sad. It is. So as the prosecution worked to build their case, it was very quickly learned that what had happened in Rattlesnake Canyon was completely out of character for Rafi. Mm -hmm. He had a great track record within his community and at his school. There was no reason for them to believe that he had committed this murder maliciously. They actually believed Rafi's story. The problem was that it was still murder. There are no laws that make exceptions for mercy killings. And so he had to be tried for murder. So once the story hit the press... General society was not as convinced. Hmm. What started out as a local story quickly became an international one. It blew up. Wow. Folks had speculated that maybe Rafi had killed David to further his writing career. Like, wow, what a compelling story. Sure would make for an interesting Kerouac-esque novel. Yeah, I read an article that posited that idea and I was like, are you kidding? They were serious. So overall, the public was angry at Rafi for what he had done. Back in Boston, they actually pulled up a file on an old cold case uh-huh. of a young au pair who was found murdered and dismembered in a dumpster in an area where Rafi and David had lived. And they actually investigated Rafi for that crime. Wow. They obviously didn't find anything to tie him to it. Yeah. And so they also wondered like, okay, there's not really a motive here, so let's make one. Mm-hmm. So they pulled things out of a hat, really is what it was. Right. The yeah. I think the one they took the most seriously was that maybe Kirsten and David, Kirsten who was dating Raffi, mm-hmm. maybe those two had a thing and Raffi found out about it and was jealous of his friend. And so he tricked him to go Just to the desert. Just pulling a bunch of random stuff out of nowhere. Totally random. Which, I mean, that's classic public opinion, mm-hmm. pulling stuff out of nowhere. Some, you know, I know it's 1999, so these kinds of bloggers don't... It maybe exist at least not to the same degree as they do today. <laughs> right. But people people just throwing stuff out there. This is pre-social media. This is I know. So, that's kind of crazy that it picked up so much traction with so many opinions because yeah. uh where are people getting these opinions from? <laughs> it's I know. literally like old school chat rooms, it sounds like. And totally. the actual news. Like yeah. that's crazy to me. But yeah. So no matter who it was, people believe that Rafi was like a full blown villain. People who lived in the deserts or had loads of experience at navigating deserts also made statements saying things like, you know, Rafi has to be lying here because they, you know, when you are an expert on something, Mm -hmm. you tend to think that everybody else has the same understanding and experiences you do sometimes Mm, by default. I think we've all been there where we know something and it feels like it should be common knowledge because it's so Mm -hmm. ingrained in us. And so I think that's where these people are coming from. I don't love it. Right. Because he's not from the desert. (laughs) 
So people really were just wildly speculating. Yeah. People were speculating that maybe Raffi was the one leading the men on a wild goose chase, tricking his friend into believing that they were lost so that he would become weak enough for Raffi to overpower and kill. Wow. That or, is I mean, crazy. for real. Yeah. That they yeah. were serious. I, I, once again, I can understand the the public panic and the like the pandemonium mm-hmm. of like a case like this yeah how do we make sense of the what what can't make sense and i feel like even that concept it's not new but it's only been in the recent history that people are willing to publicly say yeah we can't make sense of it and that's just what it is it, mm. you know for so long every Every uh, tragedy had to have a reason. Right. And it's only been recently that I feel like people are willing to admit there really wasn't one. It just is a tragedy. The consensus is now that like we can just leave it there. Yeah. Sometimes. Or, you know, after a while, people are willing to to accept that. Totally. 1999, I have a feeling less people were willing to accept that. Like, yeah. (laughs) I would I would definitely agree with that. So really, they just, the public wasn't buying Rafi's story either. They didn't trust him. So that was extremely unfortunate. And honestly, just, I, I just have to say, it's really lacking in compassion mm-hmm. for a situation as unique as this one. Yeah. And I do understand wanting justice and also like not always taking people at their word. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in a situation like this, you kind of can't totally take someone at their word. But from the journal entries and Rafi's testimony, these were just two city boys from the other side of the country getting lost in a desert. Yeah. You know, it really does not seem that far-fetched that what Rafi said was true. Hmm. So when the trial took place in January of 2000, it was pretty straightforward. Both men went into the Carlsbad Caverns National Park. They got lost and had underpacked necessary supplies. After several days and with virtually no experience in desert survival, both men were convinced that they were going to die. One friend asked the other to put him out of his misery, and his friend did. All of the evidence gathered by investigators 100% supported Rafi's testimony. Hmm. One thing that they really focused on in the trial was the effects of dehydration on the human body. After 12 hours without water, the heart begins to pump blood away from the extremities, causing arms and legs to feel as though they're being weighed down. Hmm. After 24 hours, your body begins to experience a blood shortage, which weakens the body's ability to cool itself down. So you're like really overheating. Oh, wow. Skin loses its elasticity and sweat glands begin to atrophy, causing you to begin rapidly losing weight. After 48 hours, you begin to experience a whole range of symptoms, such as extreme fatigue, dementia-like symptoms, hallucinations, manic episodes, and an urge to drink your own urine, which I feel like check, 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 check. Yeah, that's that's. Very strange. And very specific. I know. Huh, okay. I know. So by the 72-hour mark without water, the average person loses 10% of their body weight and your body temperature skyrockets. Bodily functions start to rapidly fail and you can actually experience heart failure. Couple all of that information with the fact that your body needs three liters per day at least when you're in the desert Hmm. and literally every element of Rafi's version of events does make sense. Yeah. I mean- I didn't know all of that about dehydration. Yeah, I didn't either. And it makes a lot of the decisions make sense. Now that we have hmm. that dehydration info, it's like they had no clue where they were, what was going on for like four straight days. Right. 
and here's scientific evidence of that, you know? Right, right. So he still had committed a crime, like I said, so the sentence needed to accurately match the severity of the crime. Rafi testified at his sentencing. He said, quote, what I thought I was doing was keeping my friend from going through 12 to 24 hours of hell before he died, end quote. The prosecutor asked him, it wasn't mental illness that made you kill him, it was mercy? And Rafi agreed that it was absolutely his frame of mind when he killed his friend. So some sources say that the family of David Coughlin actually wrote in a letter to the court stating that they knew and loved Rafi and that they had believed him and that if it was possible, that the court should exercise mercy towards him for his sentencing. Wow. So the judge sentenced Rafi to 15 years incarceration, but he was also moved by this story and Mm -hmm. kind of befuddled on like what kind of sentence actually made sense in this extremely one of a kind. I've said that. I'm kind of beating that over the head. Mm -hmm. This does not happen. Right. So the judge went on to suspend 13 years of Rafi's sentence. So he was informed that if he remained on his best behavior during his time in prison, he would only serve the two years, but he would have to serve the full 15 if things went awry in jail. Okay. Yeah. So in an interview after sentencing, Rafi said, quote, I still feel like I did the right thing. I feel that anybody in my position who would turn their back on their friend in that position wouldn't be deserving of coming out of that canyon in the first place. This is a life sentence. I will spend the rest of my life trying to justify my actions, end quote. Wow. When Rafi was released in November of 2001, after serving 16 months, he was able to go home and be with his family. Mm -hmm. There is very little information on Rafi Kadikian today, but I sincerely hope that he's managed to find peace. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just such a tragic yeah. situation. This is a really sad story for so many people. Yeah. And it's just... A lot of lives changed forever. And I'm sure people who think about it every single day. Oh, yeah. Still, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. So, this is actually really fascinating. A year after Rafi's sentencing, 35-year-old Pennsylvanian... Brian Tenney was visiting Rattlesnake Canyon when Mm -hmm. he noticed a letter on the ground inside of the canyon. When he read the letter, he discovered that a woman by the name of Emily Shulman had written that she was lost in the canyon and needed help. Oh, no. She, too, had gotten turned around during her trek and had even written goodbyes to her loved ones. Brian Tenney, who was very familiar with Rafi's case, actually believed it was a hoax at first. But as he walked, he saw like scraps of paper with more notes from Emily asking for help. And so he flagged down rangers who quickly went in and found her in almost the exact same spot as where Rafi and David had been. And her car was even parked in the same spot at the trailhead. Oh my gosh. So luckily Emily was found alive Uh after being lost for two days and she made a full recovery, but she was not able to find the markings to the trailhead. It was the same situation. That's crazy. So in David's honor, his family raised money to equip the Carlsbad Caverns with GPS systems for hikers who wanted mm-hmm. to brave the harsh backcountry. Mm-hmm. They also fulfilled his wishes, which were written down, of being cremated and then having his ashes scattered at the Grand Canyon. And so they did that in August 2001. Oh. His family maintained that while they were completely heartbroken over their tremendous loss, that they were not angry at Rafi and that they were the ones— who asked for their loved ones and the public to actually be praying for Rafi, to show mm-hmm. him mercy, to show him compassion. Yeah. So they sound like really special yeah. people. It's really sweet. A movie was made about this story. It was called Jerry, starring Matt Damon and Casey Affleck. 
And this story has actually helped shape New Mexican laws and has been the inspiration to improve safety standards and clear Mm -hmm. trail markers in places like Carlsbad Caverns. Wow. So for today's story, I read a few really great articles. Uh, One of them was written by Jason Kirsten for Maxim, and he actually ended up writing a book called Journal of the Dead, which was a super insightful read. Mm -hmm. So not only does it talk about the case, but it paints a super full and clear picture of who David and Rafi were as people and of the history of the Chihuahuan Desert. So I'll be linking that in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Mm-hmm. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. It's kind of a slow burn. Yes. And it's a very, um, I mean, you've said it several times. It's a unique story. Yeah. There's there's nothing else like it. Um, oh, I, okay. All right, here it comes. I have an opinion that I think is, uh, you actually kind of alluded to it with the, adjustment to New Mexican law and all that kind of stuff. But uh, considering how quickly they found them and they only had a one day permit Mm -hmm. and it was the fourth day that they were Mm -hmm. out there. um, My gut is someone didn't do their job on the second day or the third day. Well, from my understanding, the purpose of filing for the permit was to have a record of who was there mm-hmm. in case they went to locations and found that things had been tampered with. Sure. Um, someone had been hunting illegally, things sure. like that, so that they would know who to follow up with. Yeah. Like who was in the park at this time. And I don't think that they really served at all as like a check on your people. Yeah. And I get it that in 1999. I get why that's a problem. That's yeah. a problem though. Yes. And I get that in 1999, odds are... Um, maybe not high that park rangers are using computers at this point. It, probably everything's paper filed. Sure. So I get that there's not the automation of mm-hmm. who should be out today, these people. And, and, and also I don't know how many people are in this park. Could be hundreds at a time, could be 12. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But either way, my gut still goes to someone didn't do their job mm. and it led to, uh, what is that? 96 hours people being there for 96 hours, which is a full, uh, 84 hours more than they planned on being there. Yeah, Like that's problematic. And I'm, I, I understand that there's a lot of just happenstance in this story. There's a lot of just unfortunate, um, scenarios that have just kind of, just kind of led to the moment. It's not any one person's fault. But it's all very easily uh, preventable. Preventable. Well, and it's like, and it's specifically preventable by the people who know the backcountry because mm-hmm. they work there. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my whole thing. I I don't want to just put blame on park rangers and be like they suck. Of course not. I <laughs> but yeah. I I also am kind of like in this moment, like yeah, these two city boys you know, should have had a little bit better heads on their shoulders to pay attention to certain details, to look around a little bit harder, to find their way out. But they're also like they're city boys with no experience in this world. And there's park rangers who just didn't check. Mm -hmm. And that seems problematic to me. Yeah. So that's kind of my gut. That's, that's the thing that's irking me at the end of this story is more than anything else, it's kind of like, that's the one thing that you can't let happen. Mm-hmm. Like someone's going to be illegally hunting 
um, they're going to be sneaky about it and they're going to figure out how to do it. Someone's going to light fires when they shouldn't. They're going to be sneaky about it and figure out how to do it. Like you don't, you want to stop those things. But the one thing that you as a park ranger really can't allow to have happen is people stay longer than they're supposed to. And uh, then die. And then die. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really a, a problem. And I'm a little bit, now I'm getting worked up about it, but I, <laughs> so I need to stop, but, well, but the, it's frustrating. Yeah. It's cause it, yeah, it's totally preventable. That actually just brought up the thought in my mind that like, I really respect David's family for raising money and giving money to Carlsbad yeah. to be able to afford GPS systems for campers yeah, that that's really prefer cool. it. That's really great. But that's also like a little dystopian to me. Yes. Like uh, it, that I feel like it shouldn't have to take a tragedy like this. Well, you know what I mean? That also sounds like something that the park should pay for. Yeah. I'm kind of like this, this is prob- once again, it's problematic that other people are expected to do a few of these things. And to be fair, I am also a city boy with very little backcountry experience. So I could be speaking out of complete ignorance. Sure. I probably am to a degree. And I don't know. I'm just kind of like, it just seems like there's not, there's not really a precedent for park rangers to just forget that people are there. Right. I don't know. Right. Maybe there was in 1999, but. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think the the order of priorities was just a, more than a little off here. Yeah. That fair, like fair. really safety. Yeah. And I feel like we definitely improved for, in that realm. Yeah. And that's true for David board. and Rafi too. Like they, they could have gone with the the road more traveled. <laughs> they could have camped somewhere that was less in the wilderness, but also like they were there for the adventure. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's, like I've already said, it's not any one person's fault. Yeah. It just, it's a perfect storm of really unfortunate circumstances. So many of them yes. too. Like yes. if one element would have been different, the mm-hmm. story would have ended up differently. Totally. If they'd packed more water. Yeah. If, if the park rangers had showed up the day before. Right. If they hadn't eaten the cactus fruit. Yeah. I mean, there's about a million things. Yeah. If they would have uh, been able to see mm-hmm. behind them when they were up on the mountain peak. Mountain yeah. peak. I know. It's just, if any one thing would have gone differently, mm-hmm. they both would have lived. It breaks my heart. Yeah. But yeah, that story is definitely uh, maybe not as tantalizing as some of the stories that we tell on this show. But I was just so blown away that something like this could happen. Yeah. And that like they had to figure out how do we even handle this? Yeah. Because it's so not normal to have yeah. something like this happen. And so I just really wanted to tell it. Well. Yeah. Yep, that's what that's what we've got for today. Wow. Well, thank you for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Um, I'm just I'm, 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 I'm dealing with a lot of frustration on this backside of the story. So I feel like I'm just going to leave that alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform and leave a five-star review. Those reviews help other people find this podcast. Also make sure that you follow us on all social media on TikTok and Instagram at this one is a doozy and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. You can also email us at this one is a doozy at gmail.com. And you can connect with us over on Patreon. 
How can they do that and why should they, my love? Yes. So if you click the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or if you search This One's a Doozy podcast on the Patreon app or website, you can support what we're doing on the show. So for $5 a month, subscribers get access to polls where you can vote on episode topics and you can vote on which monthly charity we'll be giving to. And now you will also get access to ad-free content and bonus content. Yeah. And with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye.